Uh, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Jim Ryan, and I am the president of the University of Virginia. I would like to welcome members of our board of visitors, members of the trustees of the Thomas Jefferson Foundation, Foundation President Leslie Green Bowman, uh, Dean Golyuboff, and the law school community. Uh, thank you all for being here as we award the Thomas Jefferson Medal in Law to Justice Stephen Breyer. Um, I will be very brief. I'll talk just a little bit about the Thomas Jefferson Medals themselves and then turn the podium um, over to Dean Golyuboff. So every year, except when we're in the throes of a global pandemic, um, we award the Thomas Jefferson Medal to individuals who have made outstanding contributions in one of three fields, architecture, law, and public service broadly defined. We also, on occasion, offer an award in a fourth category, global innovation. As you may know, the university does not award any honorary degrees, and for that reason, the Thomas Jefferson Medals are the highest external awards that we offer. We do this in partnership with the Thomas Jefferson Foundation, which has not only been a great partner in this context, but has been a great role model in how to understand and convey the contributions and contradictions of Thomas Jefferson. And Leslie, for that um, and for everything else, I thank you and your team. Many of the ideals that Jefferson espoused remain central to the American experiment and remain at the heart of UVA, including the idea of citizen leadership and public service. Today, we honor Justice Breyer, a lifelong leader and a public servant whose devotion to upholding the values set forth in our Constitution has touched the lives of every American. Justice Breyer joins a long list of incredibly accomplished recipients of the Thomas Jefferson Medal in Law, a list that includes, includes names like Lewis Powell, Sandra Day O'Connor, William Rehnquist, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and Elaine Jones, just to mention a few. But even among this august company, there is no one more deserving of this recognition. Justice Breyer, we are honored to welcome you to Grounds, and we thank you for your service. And with that, I'd like to call to the podium my friend and colleague, Dean Risa Golyabuff. I'll do as I always do. <laughs> Lower the podium. My first act. President Ryan, President Bowman, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, I am thrilled to present the Honorable Stephen G. Breyer, Associate Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States, as the 2022 recipient of the Thomas Jefferson Foundation Medal in Law. For the highest honor given by a university dedicated to the training of leaders and servants of democracy, there is no more fitting recipient than this exemplary statesman who has devoted his career to such service. Justice Breyer was born and raised in San Francisco, where he attended the oldest public high school west of the Mississippi River. Public service was a family value. His father was an attorney for the San Francisco Board of Education. His mother volunteered with the League of Women Voters. The sparkling intellect, public spiritedness, and appetite for dialogue that have been hallmarks of Justice Breyer's career were obvious from an early age. 
High school classmates and fellow Eagle Scouts described him as a peacemaker and the troop brain. <laughs> Justice Breyer honed his intellect at Stanford University, where he was a member of Phi Beta Kappa, at Oxford University's Magdalen College, where he studied as a Marshall Scholar and graduated with first class honors, and at Harvard Law School, where he served as an articles editor for the Harvard Law Review and graduated magna cum laude. Justice Breyer honed the faith in democracy, deliberation, and the positive force of public institutions that he absorbed from his family throughout his 60-year career, spanning all three branches of the federal government. He clerked for Supreme Court Justice Arthur Goldberg, practiced law at the Department of Justice, and returned to government service on three occasions during his more than a decade on the Harvard Law School faculty, as an assistant special prosecutor on the Watergate Special Prosecution Force, special counsel to the Senate Judiciary Committee's Subcommittee on Administrative Practices, and chief counsel for the Senate Judiciary Committee. What Justice Breyer accomplished in these roles, as well as the brilliant and collaborative way he embodied these roles, led to his nomination to the US Court of Appeals for the First Circuit. Justice Breyer was the only judicial candidate President Jimmy Carter nominated after losing the 1980 election to Ronald Reagan, and he was confirmed 80 to 10 by the Senate. It was a different time from now, yes, with different politics and less polarization, but President Carter chose Stephen Breyer and not someone else in that moment and for that bipartisan confirmation process. 14 years later, when President Bill Clinton nominated him to the Supreme Court, he too highlighted Justice Breyer's, quote, gift as a consensus builder, and quote, his extraordinary intellectual talents. Those virtues have been on full display during Justice Breyer's 28 years on the Supreme Court. His belief in deliberation and the importance of relationships have made him the glue among his colleagues, and his commitment to the court's unique role in the American constitutional scheme has made him its greatest institutional champion. Justice Breyer's commitments to democracy and deliberation are equally core to his singular approach to constitutional interpretation. His theory of active liberty, that government not only can help people, but that government is the people, in his words, calls for judges to facilitate democratic participation on terms of equality. To Justice Breyer, the people are both the theoretical bedrock of the Constitution and the real human beings who make and live by the law every day. Justice Breyer holds out a basic humanity to all he encounters, from those who lack health care to immigrants detained without bail, from the children to whom he reads on National Literacy Day to the new Eagle Scouts to whom he annually writes congratulatory notes. His sense of shared humanity motivates and complements the judicial pragmatism that grew out of his background in administrative law, a field he transformed as a law professor at Harvard. As Justice Breyer retires from the Supreme Court this spring, his legacy will be manifold. It will be found in his dozens of books and scholarly articles, in his lucid and consequential majority opinions, and in the clarion calls for pluralism, equality, and justice that populate his impassioned dissents on issues from school segregation to campaign finance to capital punishment. Justice Breyer's legacy will be found as well in the model he offers us all as a person and a judge. Pragmatist and humanist, institutional defender and great dissenter, capacious intellectual and authentic and joyous human being, Justice Breyer will be remembered as a statesman of the highest order, whose gifts and service have redounded to the extraordinary benefit of the Supreme Court and this nation. It is one of the happiest and greatest honors of my life to present the Thomas Jefferson Foundation Medal in Law to Supreme Court Justice Stephen G. Breyer.
I mean, that was really nice. <laughs> Thank you for all those very kind words. And my legacy, if there is a legacy, I hope there is, my law clerks. Right, of which Risa was one. And uh, President Ryan really said what I was going to say. He used the two words. Uh, the two words were, uh, uh, well, what were they? Ideals? <laughs> um, experiment? That's it. <laughs> I mean, why do I say that? I mean, you know, actually, very few people know this, but Thomas Jefferson was not actually awarded the Thomas Jefferson Medal. <laughs> oh, he should have been. <laughs> I mean, my goodness, what an honor it is for me. What a, what a real honor it is to receive this. And, and I, I think of Thomas Jefferson, and I think of that word values and so forth. Because I just read, which is a pretty good book of McCullough, uh, Friendly Rivals, and, uh, or Friendly Enemies, I think that's the name. And it was about Adams and Jefferson. And the question is, of those founders, who was the greatest? And McCullough thinks, he says, well, you know, uh, Adams was much more of a realist and actually knew a lot more about politics and was very good at getting uh, uh, something done that would work. And Jefferson says, oh, God, he's up there. So, or, or he has his friends in France he's trying to impress, or whatever. But, but, uh, uh, but he ends up with Jefferson. And why? That's because of the word you said, I think, in large part, the values. So we had to learn that in, in school. You look at the Declaration of Independence. There it is. I think in a single sentence. I mean, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, mm -hmm. that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just power from the consent of the governed. And there you have it. You have to say, by many meant women, too. And there we are. Uh, the ideals of America in a single sentence. And that's the word. And uh, we have that right in our minds. Whether Joanna, who's trying to encourage our grandchildren to memorize this stuff, uh, is there or not, but there we are. All right, but the other word you used was experiment. And I like reading that not necessarily in, in, in Jefferson. I read it, George Washington wrote a very good letter about that to uh, one of his friends. And then what Joanna did make our grandchildren memorize for $20 each is the Declaration of Independence. And some actually, I mean, I think it should have been $50 because some of them did. But, but they needed a little more incentive, but so they, and you didn't have to go beyond, which I, and I sometimes can get it right, uh, that Gettysburg Address, uh, four score and seven years ago. Right? Why four score and seven years? That's a good question. That's not the Constitution he's referring back to. It's Declaration of Independence. And that word equality is right there. And that's what he's going back to, the sentence of Jefferson. And then he says, uh, four score seven years ago, our fathers brought forth upon this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition of all, that all men are created equal. Right? That's Jefferson. Okay? We are now engaged in a great war to see whether this nation 
or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. Yeah, that's the experiment. And why is it Frederick Douglass says that Lincoln was more interested in holding that union together even than ending slavery? And that's a big historical debatable point. Very interesting. But if he was, it's because he understood this experiment. Can we get that ideal really there, really there, not there on paper? And you know, and he knew those people in France. He knew those uh, Enlightenment figures. Now, I don't mean to sound from the, my tone of voice that I don't respect Voltaire, my God, of course. But, but, <laughs> but, 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 uh, these intellectuals, all for it, all for those ideals. But from time to time, they might say, ah, but it won't work. You know, it won't work. Let them try. Oh, no, we want them to. Oh, well. Yeah, yeah. But what the founders are thinking is they're thinking, and that's what Lincoln's thinking, we're going to show them. We will show them that it will work. It will work. We'll do it. And my goodness, that civil war, well, it's going to end slavery. So, ah, if who wins? Not such an easy question, my friends. But there, Lincoln is reminding people of that. We're going to win. Terrible cost. We'll win. And that will show that the experiment works. So I like those two words very much, President Ryan. <laughs> what? <laughs> Word value, values. Word experiment. And why particularly? Well. We're in it now, aren't we? Same experiment, same experiment. Can we make it work? Will we? Experiment what? Experiment to go back to those values, back to those values that we hold. The values are there, and sometimes some of them are realized to some degree. And can we do better and make them work and do more? Yeah. That's a question. Mm -hmm. And uh, every day. And so when I think of the answer to that question, I go back and I think of the values and I think how really an honor it is, an honor it is to receive this medal and the book, the words of Thomas Jefferson. Quite right. I think of that honor, but I think too, I think back and say, uh, well, I'm not the only one who has received recognition through the words of Jefferson. So are the teachers, the administrators, the students, namely every one of us. We're all part of being the recipients of the medal and certainly the part, certainly the part that takes up the word experiment and says, we will succeed. We will do it. And we're fairly good as Americans at, at getting together and projects, and that's a pretty good project. It's a pretty important one. So now what I can say, because I'm old enough to get this medal, you see, and I'm old enough, I can say, you know who's going to decide whether we do? You know who's going to decide whether we do live up to the ideals? Do you know who's going to decide whether or not that experiment in trying to achieve those ideals will work? And the answer is simple for me. The answer is simply you. And I say this to the high school students. 
I say this to the college students. I will say it to the law students. I will say, my friends, it is you who will decide. It is you who will figure out how to do it. And it is you, because I have confidence, will see that the experiment will continue and will not work perfectly, but will have its successes. And so I thank you very much for this medal and for the book. Thank you. Good afternoon, I'm Leslie Green Bowman, president of the Thomas Jefferson Foundation, better known for its ownership and operation of that World Heritage Site that we share with you all here at the university called Monticello. President Ryan, Dean Golubov, thank you for the opportunity to provide brief remarks in honor of our 2022 Thomas Jefferson Foundation Medalist in Law, Justice Stephen Pryor. In 1796, Thomas Jefferson wrote to Edward Rutledge of South Carolina. Rutledge was a fellow signer, a sometimes political antagonist, and here's the important part, a fellow gardener. Jefferson was in his early 50s, and he had devoted the majority of his adult life to public service, not unlike someone on the stage here. But he was not yet president, or even vice president. After first inquiring about garden peas, his favorite vegetable, Jefferson got to the heart of it and gently reprimanded Rutledge for failing to seek national office. In lawyerly fashion, Jefferson made his case with these words, not quite as famous as that sentence Justice Breyer read, but one you'll recognize. There is a debt of service due from every man to his country, proportioned to the bounties which nature and fortune have measured to him. Justice Breyer, you have paid that debt of service many times over, so much so that the debt now owed is one of gratitude to you by our country and we, your fellow citizens. As you embark upon your own retirement, you richly deserve what Jefferson described to John Adams as his own vision for retirement, to leave to others the sublime delights of riding in the storm, better pleased with sound sleep, encircled with the society of neighbors and friends. Justice Breyer, we thank you for your service, and we wish for you sound sleep in the encircling society of family, friends, and neighbors. And now I'm delighted to turn things over to Dean Golubov and Justice Breyer for what I know will be a stimulating and edifying conversation. Thank you. Are you ready? <laughs> okay. Um, so uh, it's so wonderful to have an opportunity to talk with you here. You feel very far away. Um, but uh, I would start by, I, I thought we could start at the beginning. Um, 
and, uh, and talk about your family and the um, legacy of public service that you've carried on from your family. And I'm also curious, you know, your, your incredible optimism about government and about the fact that government can be a positive good, so not just your service, but your attitude toward what government does and what it does for people. Um, does that come from your family? Say more about that. Where, where did you learn that? What did they show you? Well, my mother was probably, uh, yeah, that's why she was involved in the UN Association of League of Women Voters, all the different things in San Francisco. We're going to improve various uh, ways in which government worked and so forth. And my father was pretty practical. I mean, you can't be lawyer for the school board uh, without uh, being practical and being, uh, and Katanji's father's lawyer for the school board in Miami. <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, you, you have, my father used to say the most important thing you can know as a school board attorney is a geography. Why geography, people would say. Well, just one question, what? You'd say, where is City Hall? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, so he, he was interested in trying to make these institutions work. Okay. So uh, you then became a person who tried to make institutions work. And I get the sense from your biography that uh, your time on the Judiciary Committee and working on the Hill was really formative to how you think about government working, how you think about talking with people who might have different views from you and the value of that. And can you talk a little bit about that? No, I loved working on the Judiciary Committee. I worked for Senator Kennedy. He was chairman of the committee. I was chief counsel, and Senator Thurman was the chief minority uh, senator. And there were 10 Democrats and seven Republicans, and we tried to get them together. And every single morning, every single morning, Ken Feinberg, who was like the number one and a half on the staff of I was, Ken Feinberg and I would have breakfast with Emory Sneeden, who was Thurman's chief of staff, who was former JAG general, a wonderful man. And uh, we would try to work out the day. And our uh, plan was usually no secrets, no surprises. Uh, we would try to figure out how, well, we called it open conniving, openly arrived at. <laughs> <laughs> and the, 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 the uh, um, we tr try to get these things, you know, uh, certain legislative items and, and others, uh, in a situation where whether you were a Republican or a Democrat, you could vote for them. You see, you know, to these things, for the, this group could say to its constituents, and the other things they could say to the other constituents, and it all fit together, it was honest, uh, but they ended up being able to vote for it, and they liked that. They appreciated that. They wanted, I mean, and that's why people criticize, the, I mean, I don't know, maybe it's all changed a million percent, but, but I don't see why a person would spend time in public life unless somewhere down deep he wanted to do something good for the country. And that's there. That's there. I think whether you're a Republican, whether you're a Democrat, whatever you are, you have to tap it. The job of the staff is to get it into a situation where they can do it. <laughs> and that's not so easy. But it was fun. I loved it. <laughs> I would get on the bicycle and get there at 7.30 in the morning. <laughs> and you never knew what was going to go on. And there we are. It was great. It was great fun. I really enjoyed it. All right. Well, you know, uh, Senator Kennedy is our graduate. Yes, he is. A, a lot of Kennedys. A lot of Kennedys are our graduates. Yeah. Very. <laughs> <laughs> and Mort Kaplan taught them tax. I remember that. It <laughs> yeah. was great. Yeah. Here we are in Kaplan Auditorium. And yeah. Very fitting. Um, 
So one of the other uh, pieces of your biography before we get to the court um, was your administrative roles, uh, and particularly airline deregulation and your, your application of scholarship to law. Um, and I wonder if you could talk about that uh, and what that was like, and then also the extent to which you uh, see that experience or that administrative law um, uh, expertise then affecting the way you think about the Constitution, the way you think about judging uh, uh, once, you, once you join the judiciary? Well, the administrative law fits into the Constitution in the sense that the Constitution is primarily a structural document. Uh, if you think of those first seven articles, the Constitution very rarely tells people what to do. They're supposed to decide what to do at the ballot box. Now, there are limits imposes limits, but the Constitution also primarily sets up a structure for government, and that structure uh, will, uh, we hope, uh, allow a basically democratic system, not 100%, but basically democratic system to work in the sense that people will have an opportunity to direct what kind of cities, towns, countries, and so forth they want. And so one of the things that has developed primarily in the 20th century, beginning before, the little bit before, and now is uh, the world is very complicated. Uh, technology is complicated, and don't ask me more than that about it, because I won't be able to answer. But the, the uh, uh, and uh, our lives are complicated in many, many ways. And so we have these structures underneath the president or Congress or elsewhere, administrative structures, and how do you work the, consistently with the democratic principles of the Constitution in, in a fair way? That's administrative law. And so uh, I did like you say, uh, well, what can I say about airline dereg? I did work on that. We did, I did help get that through. Uh, we did have an, a very interesting time. And when I think now about it, I think of Andy Devorney. Now, you don't know Andy Devorney, but I did. Andy, Andy Devorney was at United Airlines. He was vice president. And I learned, this shows how little I know about the business community, but I learned in every large business, there is one person who really understands the business thoroughly, and it's never the president. Okay. <laughs> so, so, so Andy Devorney was that person at United Airlines who understood the whole thing. So United sent us a, said, if you go ahead with DREG, we're going to cancel 350 routes. So, so uh, Kennedy said, what do we do now? I said, very simple. Uh, others, he said, well, we'll, we'll get, uh, I think it was uh, George Eads, who's a good economist, and uh, a couple others. We went to see Andy Devorney at, uh, in Chicago, and we brought the printout, or whatever they had, the equivalent then, of the, uh, all these routes, and we went over them one by one. And one was like, Newark to JFK. So I said, that's a route? Newark to JFK. <laughs> I said, what's that for? He says, well, that's ferrying aircraft. You mean you're not going to ferry aircraft under D? Oh, well, we'll cut that off. So we went through a, a, a set of negotiations, and we ended up that we agreed that there were like 80 routes, and we could, uh, we could uh, uh, give them a subsidy uh, so they can continue with those a very low subsidy, which we put in the bill. All right, so Devorney said to me, and I remember, these are the words I remember. He said, Stephen, I think you all are right. See, they had no price competition then, zero. He says, you will deregulate prices, and that will fill up the airplanes. 
And the people you're trying to help, the people used to have to carry the chicken coops on the back of their cars in Texas, they'll fly. They'll fly. We'll fill up the planes and the prices will fall. And it's true, the planes are full. And the prices are 50% in real terms of what they were in 1973. I keep track because it cheers me up a little. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, you know what else he said? He said, and Stephen, you will hate it. <laughs> there we are. <laughs> Was he right? Do you hate it? Well, after taking nine hours to get down between Boston and Washington the other day and have them call up and sorry, your plane's canceled. We have another one for you at noon. I said, thank you, but it's now 10 minutes to 12 and I'm at home. What am I thinking? <laughs> I mean, you know, it's not perfect, I guess. <laughs> but there we are. Was that better before deregulation? Oh, yes. It was. Yes. Oh, my God. Oh, I yes. Mean, those of us who've only lived so in deregulation can't imagine. No, no, we don't know. no, it's fabulous. You flew. No, no, you flew in an airplane, and uh, they had the Aloha sandwich bar, which you, <laughs> and, and drinks of all kinds, and, and, and you walk around, and, and the seat next to you would be empty, and uh, Lieberler, who was head of the Federal Trade Commission, gave the best point about that. He said, the business traveler is delighted uh, to find the seat next to him is empty, but would he, or the commercial traveler and non-commercial traveler be quite so happy if they realize that they are paying full fare for the briefcase. <laughs> because the cheapest flights across the country then to go from, say, Boston or New York to San Francisco or California were at the, today, the equivalent of quite a lot over $1,000. Okay? So my friend Paul McAvoy, who I worked with, he said he had a great idea. What he was going to do to make his fortune was to get together with some people, and they were going to produce better than first-class flights on these airplanes. They'd take you up to your house, take you to the airplane, and it would cost only half as much as first-class cost then. And they did it. And you know what happened to them? Bankrupt. <laughs> Why? People don't want to pay. They want to pay. They don't want to pay. They don't want to pay for that. You want to pay for it, you can do it. A little expensive. You have to rent time on a private plane, but nonetheless, if that's your, but they don't. So they have what they want. And the person with that chicken coop is in the airplane. And uh, if you don't like flying with chicken coops in the airplane, well, you better find a guru for the stock market. But there we are. <laughs> but uh, in any case, in any case, that's airline dereg, and it is half the price, and uh, it is a little uh, uh, less desirable service. <laughs> <laughs> but a story of real democratization, right? That's, that's the, the yeah, well, access is, yeah, to access. The story is, uh, that's yeah. what we said we were doing. Yep. We're giving you some, <laughs> and it is true. It is true. That's what we were trying. Why? Oh, that was the time of busing. In, uh, Boston. Boston. And we had a hearing up there, and one of the followers of Louisa Day Hicks you know, came into the hearing and said to Senator Kennedy, why are you having these hearings on airline regulation, Senator Kennedy? I've never been able to fly. I mean, she went, you know, thing. And Kennedy said, that's why I'm having the hearing. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. There we are. 
Now, what other legislation would you like to uh, <laughs> I was going to go a little higher level of generality next, uh, unless there's other legislation you want to talk about. <laughs> okay. Um. There was the time when Senator Heflin and Senator Bayh got mixed up on whether they were voting for National Pork Week or National Port Week. <laughs> I'll spare you the rest. <laughs> It really sounds like the uh, punchline to a joke. Uh, um, okay, so my, my next question was, as I said, at a higher level of generality. So um, as you have, you know, are about to retire, and there have been lots of descriptions of you and your approach to uh, judicial, uh, the judicial role in constitutional interpretation, there's a lot of descriptions of you as a pragmatist. I might have called you that myself at some points, although I think it's only a partial description. Um, but I'm curious, do you embrace that term? Uh, do you think it's appropriate? What would you complement it with? H how do you think about that? When, when you hear people say, Justice Breyer, the pragmatist. Um, well, I think it's true in a sense. No? I, think, I think it's true in a sense. Uh, but the sense, because I studied philosophy as an undergraduate. And uh, uh, so the American philosophers who were called pragmatists were purse. Who, by the way, Holmes was a, that, that, that's a very good book, that Menon book about the Saturday, what is it, the Saturday Club or something, or Friday, uh, Wednesday Club, or Friday, whatever it is. The Metaphysical purse, Club? Metaphysical Club. Uh, yeah, the Metaphysical Club. Purse, James, and Quan. And they're, they're, they're philosophical pragmatists, which is complex. But it is, uh, well, I'll get it wrong, but I mean, the basic idea is that people uh, have in their heads very complex sets of concepts that fit together under theories. And scientists change those sometimes. But you can't change too much. And uh, when you decide that this is false uh, because of the observations you've had or whatever, you might have been able to say this is true, but you would have had to change so much in terms of your basic theoretical beliefs about how people perceive things or about what nature is like or about what mathematics is like, that we wouldn't because the system as a whole won't work. Now, I don't know if I've said it correctly, but I'm trying to show you that the sense in which I accept pragmatism <laughs> is a little bit more complicated than what someone will think when they're reading a newspaper. When they read a newspaper, they will think pragmatism in the sense that you do whatever works in this instance and make things better. It's not quite that. It's pragmatism in the sense of we are, as lawyers and judges, parts of very complicated systems that have institutions, such as law firms, such as lawyers, such as judges, and clients of all kinds as well as people who do what they say, or have to sort of do what they say. And all that makes up a body of law that has much more than that. It has rules of stare decisis. It has rules of how one thing will lead to another thing. It has rules of what is a precedent. And when someone tries to write a precedent and says, I don't want it to be a precedent, so I'll just write here and say, this isn't a precedent for anything. Ha, ha, ha. Are you kidding? You can't do it. Because we are in an institution that will take it as a precedent, no matter what you say there. All right? So there are many things like that. 
many standards, rules, approaches, institutions, bodies of people like lawyers, judges, and so forth that react. And depending on the case, you will take those things into account. All know which ones are relevant. And so if you do this over here, how will it affect that over there? It might be an absolutely wonderful thing to decide X. But wait, if I decide X over here, what will that do over there? And what does it do to this more basic institution? And how will the bankruptcy judges understand it? If, in fact, that's what it's about. And uh, I mean, but you see the point. So that's what Quine sees from a point of view of epistemological theory. He calls it the network, a great net of beliefs. Push this here, change da, da, da. In that sense, I would say I've read his book. And I think there are analogies to law. And uh, I, I think that those analogies are useful. And overall, in the very long run, and enough people working at this long enough, law should work out, which means it will work better for the people who have to live within those systems. Trying to do that just over here or over there or make it a little bit better, that's not so easy. But that's what you have to try. So in that system, and in the, that's a, a fairly functionalist view, right, and in the structure of the Constitution, how do you know, how do you determine when individual rights should be uh, recognized uh, in perhaps opposition to those government officials who are doing their best or to, you know, when, when does the structure require the, the, the vindication of individual rights that are usually often against the government? How do you know? I can't give you a, a, a general answer, but I can give you what I found an interesting example, which I've written about some. And that, of course, is Brown. But it isn't Brown. I mean, Brown v. Board well, for quite a long time, people understood that equal protection of the law is not being followed in one third of this country or more. And you would have had to have been blind to think that there was separate but equal going on. It was separate but not equal. Well, everybody knew that. And they knew, and there's an interesting, interesting opinion by Holmes, written about 30 years before on the 15th Amendment, where he says, of course, they're not following the 15th Amendment, but I have to consider that a political question. Why? He's pretty honest about it. He says, because if I write the opposite, nobody's going to do it. Okay? He basically says that. And so when uh, Brown comes along, and Vincent had been, I think, somewhat, wasn't getting the court enough together. Frankfurter saw that. It's a mean thing to say. But supposedly, Phil Elman tells us that at, at uh, Vincent's funeral, Frankfurter said, now I know there is a God. <laughs> now, he was thinking of Brown to come. <laughs> and uh, uh, the, the uh, OK. So I say to the students, and I say to so with Brown, Fine. And what happened in 1955, the year after Brown? Nothing. 
next to nothing. 1956, the students don't say anything then. I say, you're right, double nothing. <laughs> I say, then in 1957, a judge actually from North Dakota, I think, in Little Rock, says those nine black children will enter that white school, Central High. Good. September 1957, they go there. But Governor Falbus was on the doorstep or had control. And the white citizens' council were all around the school. And Falbus basically said, those children may have a court order, but I have the police. They didn't enter. And the picture of Elizabeth Eckford turning, reading those books, and uh, a white girl in back of her, Hazel Bryant, face contorted with rage, contorted with rage. Um, I thought that a black child would enter a white school. And that picture went around the world. Around the world, because there were journalists from all over there. And uh, Hayes Brooks, who is the congressman from Little Rock, then arranges a meeting between uh, Falbus and President Eisenhower at the summer White House then it was. He was in Newport, and he goes up there, Falbus, uh, and he says to Eisenhower, I'll let the kids in the school, I'll let them in. He goes out and tells the press the opposite. And uh, uh, Eisenhower's pretty angry. So he says, what shall I do? Hmm. Eisenhower took advice. He asked Jimmy Burns, moderate governor of South Carolina, Former Supreme Court Justice ran the war effort, resigned to run the war effort in World War II economically at home. Burns says to him, Mr. President, you better not send troops. If you send troops, you'd better be prepared to occupy the South. You'd better be prepared to have a second reconstruction. You'd better because the best that will happen is they'll close all the schools. But Herbert Brownell, his wise counselor, said, Mr. President, you must send troops. The rule of law here is at stake. You've got to do it. And Eisenhower sent a thousand paratroopers from the 101st Airborne. And I promise you that everyone in 1957 in America knew who they were. They were the people who had invaded Normandy and gotten hung up on the steeples and been shot down in the heroes of the Battle of the Bulge. And they went on those airplanes and they took those nine children by the hand and they walked them into the school. I'd like to end there, but I can't. Because they couldn't stay forever and because a year later they all moved out and because uh, the board, the school board, which was then controlled, White Citizens Council, voted to end segregation and that case went to the Supreme Court, Cooper versus Aaron, and the Supreme Court unanimously said all writing themselves right on it. They have to integrate, they have to. Wait a minute, there were nine judges. Nine. Those have been 9,000. So, so. And indeed, the next day, Balbus closed the school. And read David Margolik's book about the relation, they tried to make it up, uh, between uh, uh, Elizabeth Eckford and Hazel Bryant in later years. And they couldn't. They, I mean, they tried. But, but uh, my goodness, and see what happened to those children, white and black. Tough. Tough, but it couldn't last. 
It couldn't last, in my opinion, and that of others, because that was the time of Martin Luther King. That began. The Freedom Riders. The country began to wake up. It began to say, oh, Freedom Riders. Connie Motley, too. She was there. Thurgood Marshall. A lot of these people. Uh, they were there. And so I asked once Vernon Jordan, who was uh, a friend and was a great hero of that movement, ran the Urban League and so forth, whatever. And uh, I said, Vernon, in your opinion, did Brown v. Board matter? I mean, wasn't it World War II? And wasn't it the battalions? And wasn't it the waking up of the North uh, to the need that really ended this segregation? Did the Supreme Court, would it have happened differently without the Supreme Court, in your opinion? And he said, of course the Supreme Court mattered. Just don't think they did it by themselves. It may be that Congress wouldn't have helped them, and he didn't, they didn't. Or the president was only some help. It required the country, but the Supreme Court mattered. Okay, does that answer your question? <laughs> yeah, how do you know? Do you how do you know? It's so easy for us to say, we would have known. Okay, I'll accept that, we would have known. But I wanted that description to go on at some length because I wanted in your mind the need to understand what really took a little courage and what really, who knows, who knows what could have happened, but it didn't. And we came through and life is not perfect at the moment. Uh, and, but as I say, it's a continuous progress there, a continuous effort which required far more than judges and which required far more than lawyers. And uh, that's what I wanted to tell that woman from Ghana who was a president of the court in Ghana who came and said, why do people do what you say? Because she wanted that court in Ghana to be more civil rights oriented and more democracy oriented. Why do they do it? And I can't give her an answer. I can't give her an answer. I can tell her some stories. And you get those stories, you begin to see how do you know? Holmes? He may have known, but he knew he couldn't do it. Warren? They thought maybe they could. Maybe they could. With a little help from our friends. <laughs> and indeed, and indeed, and indeed. So I have a follow-up to that. <laughs> Shocking. Um, so uh, we're still debating what Brown meant. We're still arguing about Brown's legacy. Parents involved, the Seattle schools, I think one of your most important dissents. Um, what's at stake in thinking about Brown's legacy? How do we, how do we think about that for the future? What, what role did that, do you think that is one of your most important dissents? Is that something people are gonna be thinking about even I don't going know. Forward? I don't know. I mean, the question is a difficult question. It's a question of affirmative action. And of course, what we hope is, and I believe it, uh, I can't be 100% certain, that people are disagreeing about means to the same end. And the end is, what is the end? The end is you have a country of 331 million people where each of those people respects the other person as a person. Okay? And so what we faced 
at the time of Brown and in later times and with affirmative action was, let's say, Thurgood Marshall, uh, until you have black and white children together in the same classroom in the fourth grade, you're going to get attitudes that are unhealthy. And maybe you need some affirmative action to get there. And you have other points of view, too, which will say, no, you're going to just perpetuate this, uh, 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 this uh, stereotypical feeling. Don't do it. All right. Those are points of view, too. Now, I have my point of view. Other people have their point of view. And uh, I think, and that's what Sandra O'Connor and Lewis Powell said. They said, try affirmative action, uh, but not too much. <laughs> and, and what is not too much? I don't know exactly. But uh, that's what she has in there, and that's what Powell had in there. And there uh, uh, we are. Can I add? What can I add to that? I have a long section in that dissent saying, look, this is not exactly the world's easiest problem. When Tuckville came over here, he wrote a very good book, which is still worth reading in the 1830s, about American institutions. And one of the things he writes about is there are two most terrible problems. One, the Indians, he says, and the other is slavery. Yeah, well, that was right. He said, don't worry so much about the Indians, because they'll kill all the Indians. Hmm. There was some truth to that. Uh, but slavery, he said, I have no idea what will happen. But that's going to be a problem, and it is a problem. And indeed, and indeed. And so what I think, this is my where my optimism comes from, is Mrs. Squataguatza in the fifth grade. And Mrs. Squataguatza in the fifth grade at Grant School would have a project we'd each have to have about San Francisco, and she'd divide us into groups of four, and she would give one grade to all four. Okay? So you had to work together. <laughs> and indeed, one of the things we're sometimes fairly good at doing, I think, in this country is working together. And so, at what? At all kinds of things. And, and so, uh, uh, when I saw COVID, you know, I mean, there were, there were groups in Cambridge, Massachusetts, who went out in the neighborhoods and saw that some people needed food or they were old and having a hard time getting around. And that wasn't confined to Cambridge, Massachusetts. It would exist right here in Charlottesville. It would exist in St. Louis. It would exist in San Diego. It's all over the place. And that's because we're, that's one of the things I think, perhaps it's conceded, but I think for America, we're fairly good at it. And so I, I think if someone gives us this challenge, as we certainly are seeing it, we are going to create, we will create a world that takes time, but we will create a country where, that's Frederick Douglass, where people are respected as individuals. And what's the general attitude? Hard to express in words, but I like this. It's a tone of voice. I was nominated to the Supreme Court. I was confirmed. I was on the airplane with Senator Kennedy after being confirmed. We got off the plane at Logan, walked down the ramp, and there's a reporter there, a woman from a Jewish newspaper. And she says, how do you feel about two Jews being on the Supreme Court? Hmm. And I said, because Kennedy didn't know I'd do this, so he was trying to whisper why. <laughs> I said, just like this, because it's what I thought. Fine. Yeah. Fine. Okay. So? So? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> that's it. And, and we're moving there. 
I like that. Fine. Okay. Hey, what's the problem? I mean, don't say what's the problem. Say what's the problem. There might be a problem. There is no problem. <laughs> and, and that's the uh, that that is the uh, sort of attitude. The sort of attitude that we may have a ways to go. Uh, but uh, we'll get there. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm an optimist too, so I, I like the optimism. Um, so, 28 years on the court. What has changed? What has not changed? Your I've gotten role? older. I, well, I was going to say, you are no longer the junior justice, no. which you were when I was a clerk. But uh, other than that, or including that, what has changed? Well, it's a different court in this respect. I mean, I, uh, you know, I started out with Sandra and David Souter and Sandra O'Connor and others who, well, we don't always agree on things. They have a sort of basic attitude that, that uh, I can talk to them pretty easily. I can talk to people now. I can talk to the appointees now. But their, their attitude is the appropriate way to go about deciding a certain number of cases. It's not political. It's just that it's a different uh, approach. And who knows? The court hasn't changed its approaches in the past. I mean, the New Deal court was not the court of Chief Justice Stone. And it wasn't the court uh, of the Four Horsemen. And gradually, the country had changed. The problems were different. And uh, the court changes very slowly, too, very slowly. And in that sense, there is a, there is a, a political aspect because of changes in who is appointed. Now, I think the question to think about for those interested is not so much politics. If they're interested in law, think about is the court changing and how much and where and should it? All right, and the answers to that are going to be sometimes more technical than you might think. And those kinds of things are harder to think about and decide how to change and what to say and so forth than you might think. And uh, what is the greatest ally, in my opinion, if I take as a given that the way I've been working is preferable, surprise, surprise, I think it is, but the, the is time is an ally. Time is an ally. Why? Because when you're first appointed to that court, it takes three to five years before you can settle down. I mean, first thing you don't say to anybody, but my God, can I do this job? And whatever you say, and however confident you may appear, you're thinking, hmm, I hope so. <laughs> and it takes three or five years. Douglas said five years. I think David Souter said three years. And then uh, you think, well, I can do the best I can. I'll do the best I can. Every minute. Huh. And that's true. But uh, time also allows you to absorb mores. And I say mores and customs because uh, I think within the court, but also in the country, and also in lots of institutions. We have, we being different groups, same groups, different approaches, we develop mores that allow this complicated, multiracial, religious, national origin, anything you want, this complicated country to live in a way that's basically 
lives up to Jefferson's ideals, which it doesn't, but it tries. <laughs> and, and that's the, that's the, the, the uh, uh, so, so I think time, because the Maury's, the nature of the institution, all those things won't change so quickly, and people will absorb them. And uh, administrative law, should we overrule Chevron? That's a good fighting. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, it's more than that. It's more than that that's underneath that question. And if they really want to change, if others want to change, or the court wants to change, some of those cases, they're going to have to start to grapple with the underlying problems and how they can do better. And all that takes time. So I say, yeah, there have been some changes. I don't really call them political. Uh, and uh, will they turn out to be sort of watershed in the court? I don't know. No one knows, uh, including the people involved. There we are. There's a very good non-answer. <laughs> I am always struck by uh, the fact that you can't it's very hard to know what a case means until later, yeah, right, when it's true. an iterative process and other people are interpreting it mm -hmm. going forward. Mm -hmm. um, so speaking of uh, becoming a justice and new justices, Katanji Brown-Jackson just confirmed your That's clerk. Um, and I'm curious to, for you to share a little bit about um, you know, there's been a lot of talk uh, by me, by Vince Chabria, my co-clerk, who's a judge with your brother on the Northern District of California, about how diverse your clerks are and, uh, and how you mentor your clerks and we go out into the world. And I'm curious to hear you say a little bit about that and about your relationships with your clerks and maybe how you feel about this, this Supreme Court seat, number two, now going to a, a former clerk. That's here. great. I feel very good about that. <laughs> <laughs> I thought a softball yeah. was in Right, order. right, right. And how I feel, my, they're my family. I mean, they're an enlarged family, uh, but the, you have no idea what pleasure it is for me to walk into the room. Uh, it's a little, you know, I have this case today. My God, what am I going to do the God bankruptcy and the <laughs> thing and that, uh, you know. And uh, Clarence Thomas, <laughs> what was the case we had? It was so technical. So <laughs> I'm supposed to announce it. So he whispers in my ear, I think this is cases about ERISA. Does it modify EDPA in, with IRA? <laughs> So I got out and I said, this case is, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, then I walk into my room and see my clerks. And we sit down, it's great. And I follow what they do and I, I, I'm delighted. I'm delighted when they do Always. I was here. We are too. Uh, okay, my last question before we open it up to the audience for some questions, and this is a good segue question, I think. Um, there's a lot of discussion these days about free speech on campus and the contours of free speech and how we should think about uh, inviting people to speech and the obligations of people within a particular community to one another and what free speech protects. Um, and uh, these are fairly heated conversations and uh, they're happening, I think, at universities all over. I think they're particularly important for law schools where we're in the business of speaking and listening and making arguments and having to um, uh, account for other people's arguments, and I'm curious if you have thoughts about that whole panoply of questions. Yeah, I personally am in favor of free speech. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> and and uh, yeah, I mean, uh, that's what this other cheerleader opinion is about, really. And the line I wanted in there, uh, which I did put in, uh, was uh, uh, America's public schools. I said that was a public school, and that was where it came up. But it's true of all schools. I said America's public schools are the, are the nurseries of democracy. And so uh, uh, this is a good chance when you're in the campus to hear people that you don't agree with. And the thing that I learned from Senator Kennedy, and boy, I've kept this, and it has helped. Now, I'll tell you what he, told, what he told his staff. And he said, because there were people there who disagreed with him, mm -hmm. and we'd be for some things, and there'd be other people for other things. He said, take people who really disagree with you, and if you need their vote. <laughs> and, uh, but even if you don't, get them to talk. Talk. The more they talk, the better. And pretty soon, you will discover that they'll say something you agree with. And when they say that's something you agree with, you say, that's pretty good. <laughs> Let's work with that. I bet we can. And lo and behold, some of the time, you would achieve something. Not everything you want. Maybe 30%. But he said, take the 30% rather than take 100% of what you didn't get and be a hero to the group that you're working with and support you. Forget that. Get the 30%. And then when the time comes to give the credit, that's the person you give the credit to. And I cannot tell you how often I saw him on a press conference, in a press conference with a Republican. Orrin Hatch was so helpful on this. It's Orrin you should be talking to, okay? Because he'd say credit is a weapon. It's a weapon, all right? If the thing works, don't worry. There'll be plenty of credit to go around. And if it doesn't work, who wants it? Okay. And, and that is Kennedy. And I learned a lot from that. And that works in many, many contexts. And why do I bring it up in this context? Because we, it is true. You, the country is more divided in many ways. All right, so well, it's easy to go sit and say how right you are and how wrong some other person is, particularly with people who agree with you. I mean, you know, that isn't, doesn't require a genius to do that. Uh, 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 but. Uh, Listen to the people who disagree with you. Ah. And then they'll say something, maybe, if you're lucky. You needn't be that lucky. They're going to. And you think, well, maybe we can work with that. And maybe this speaker said it, but maybe some friend of his on the campus is saying the same thing. And, oh, talk to them. And I say, hey, my friends, do not sit around uh, and be so cynical. Do not sit around and say, oh, this country is hopeless. Do not sit around and say, oh, gee, all these politicians are crooks. Oh, gee, oh, gee, it's so terrible. So, no, hey, you know, thank you. I, I can get a record with that. But, but, but let's uh, work on this. Let's listen to people who disagree with us. Let's try and bring them along, or at least find some areas. At least find some areas, and then we work with that. And so that's what I want to tell the high school students. I say what I think you, I tell about Mrs. Quattaguatza. <laughs> and I say, you, you can work together. You can work together, just don't be so cynical. Just don't sit there and uh, that gives nobody anything. 
Go and participate in public life. If you really want to participate on the library board, great. You want to participate in the public school system, wonderful. You want to go participate, I don't care how. You go participate and you practice. You practice working with other people. And you participate, you practice, uh, you listen, and uh, when you think you can't stand it anymore and you just can't bear what they're saying and what it is, uh, I'll tell you who public enemy number one is and you'll tell you how to find him. It's called the mirror, all right? So uh, that's tough. <laughs> Uh, but you wanted to know what I thought about it, <laughs> and that's what I think about it. All right. Thank you. I did want to know, and I'm glad to know. Um, questions from the audience? We have two administrators with uh, microphones, one in each aisle. So we are live streaming this, and it will be available later, so we want people to be able to hear you. So uh, I'll call on you, raise your hand, and, uh, and then you can make your way to one of the microphones. Hands? Don't be intimidated. Kim. Oh. Go ahead, Kim. Thank you, Justice Breyer. Uh, my question is, how useful do you think oral arguments are to moving justices' opinions? Thank you. Well, oral arguments are really for the justices to ask questions as they develop. Uh, everyone before the oral argument has uh, read the briefs, all the justices have read the briefs, our law clerks have read the briefs, we've discussed them with the clerks, the clerks have written memos, uh, and we've probably discussed them two or three times. So we think we know the case pretty well. Then we go into oral argument, and we have a point of view. I usually have a point of view when I read the first brief, but uh, my point of view might change when I read the second brief. You say, uh, being open-minded isn't not having a point of view. I think it's being willing to change when you see facts and arguments that show that that initial point of view was wrong. Now, oral argument, they're a little bit more fixed, but they can change. Now, how often do they change from A to not A? Not very often. Not very often. I can't say never. Sometimes they do. But if I'm forced to put a number, say 5%, 10% maybe if you're optimistic, and you have a losing case, 2%, uh, 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 I don't know, small percentage. But in changing the way a judge looks at the case, what are the matters that seem more important? What are the matters that seem uncertain? What are the matters we should be a little careful about in how we describe them? It has an influence there much more often. More than half the time, probably not. But 30, 40%, maybe, maybe so. And all that's important because how that opinion is written, what it says, what those words are, are really often more than the holding uh, going to make a difference to how the law functions uh, in whatever area it is. So I think oral argument is important and more than the clerks think usually. <laughs> Other questions over here in the front. Justice Breyer, thanks so much for coming out. I know we're all just so delighted to have you speak. So to borrow some words from President Ryan, you say that this country is an experiment to implement the values of the thoughts of the founders and their time and before. As we all charge into our legal careers, what is some advice that you can give us on how to implement those values? Well, again, I think of my father. I said this, they asked this the same thing, I'd give him the same answer. His second best advice was just to answer your question. 
And here's what he said. I'll tell you, you want to know his first best advice, which isn't bad advice. It was stay on the payroll. <laughs> but, that's, right. but, but, but he said, do your job. You see? And do it as well as you can. And usually your job, we hope, will be helpful to some people, at least. And uh, you do your job as well as you can. And you pay attention to what other people say. And you try to be helpful in there. Uh, somebody might notice, by the way. And you might get a better job. But if nobody notices, you still have the satisfaction of having done this as about as well as you can. And that's important. And that's what he told me. And that's what I've tried to do. Justice Breyer also said earlier today about being a law student, the most important advice he gave you was to read. <laughs> oh, no, I said, wait, well, this really, but no, no, it's not as bad as that. <laughs> I thought that was good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, no. I said, what was, I said what you ought to read is read your own notes after class. I mean, reading what you've written is more interesting than reading what somebody else written, after all. But then, and then, at the end of the week, read it again. And if you do that as a law student, and you really do it, it's pretty hard to do. And you do that every week. By the time the exam comes around, you'll discover it's much easier to remember what anybody said in the class. Oh, OK. I think that's not bad. Excellent. <laughs> that's why I wanted you to repeat it. I thought it was great advice. Uh, other questions? Yep, in the middle. Uh, Justice Breyer, thank you so much for talking with us. Um, I know both you and Dean Goldoboff have mentioned optimism going forward. Um, but in a more realistic sense, sometimes in the law school, there is a very cynical sense going forward. Um, currently, we're seeing what should be settled principles and precedent kind of coming under attack, um, such as you know Roe v. Wade, um, and even a current congressional member stating that Loving v. Virginia um, was poorly decided. Um, does this worry you going forward? I'm or always worried when people go, <laughs> I mean, of course, of course. But the question isn't whether to be worried. The question is that people say what they're thinking. That's what they're thinking. OK. So now the question for us, I mean, and us, I mean people who don't necessarily, is well, all right, what do we do? And going around bearing your, Arthur Goldberg said that to me once when I clerked, I clerked for Arthur Goldberg. And I know this is a little corny what he said, it's sort of stupid, but it made an impression on me. <laughs> what he said was, I mean, somebody else was disagreeing. And I said, well, we've got to write this because we're so right. And he said, no, don't bother writing again. We've written our point, and that's what we can do. And I said, well, we've got to do something more. And he'd say, what do you want me to do, cry? <laughs> <laughs> hey. Okay, uh, so, so uh, let's, uh, uh, hey, so we figure out. And that's why I thought Senator Kennedy's advice is good. And uh, uh, remember what used to be, what used to be, you don't even know you're too young. <laughs> but it used to be what Ruth used to say. The woman's place is in the home. Okay, so what did the woman do in the home? Well, the best characterization of that. I saw it was in a New Yorker cartoon, I think, where uh, somebody, a woman was pointing to her husband, and she said, uh, oh, uh, he decides, you see, uh, he decides all the important, uh, let's see, oh, I just sort of do the minor things, like 
take care of the house and see that the children are at school and see they have enough to eat and wear and have their friends over and so But he decides the really important things, like what should we do in Vietnam and how, <laughs> all right, you, you see? I mean, please, we do what we can do. And we do what we can do, I think, leans in the direction of listening, talking, persuading, but by no means shutting off the people who have this really different view. And I see that uh, when I see a few numbers. And I say, there are an awful lot of people here, and I can only talk to like 14 at a time, sometimes more, but these are all people, a lot of them agree with me already, so I don't need to talk to them. But the, the, but the, the, the point is, uh, participate. Get out there, and you find it hard to get people to agree with you to go to your uh, pro-choice rally. Okay, then let's take them to a different rally. And you're not going to go to a, the other one, <laughs> but uh, there are a lot of things. There are lots of things to think about. The world is made of many things, you know? And uh, don't shut them off. You don't shut the people off. One of the great virtues of the country is uh, 331 million people, yeah, living together. And what I see, I saw this in an article the other day, that some countries are primarily held together by documents and others by memory. Both of both in every country, but we're primarily a document. I have it here, I got it. And believe me, this is the document. That's it. And you can get people of very, very different points of view. Not always agreeing about how to interpret this, but they'll, they'll say, yeah, even if they don't know exactly what's in it. And that helps us stay together. It really does. And I see it every day, and I marvel at it every day. Absolutely. So that's the side I'd like you to be on. I'd like you to be on the side that, however worried it is, worry something keep down in here. Or talk to your pillow or your roommate at night. <laughs> but uh, um, yeah. but uh, trying to be a positive force, decent, nice to that person who disagrees with you, see something amusing in what they say, <laughs> see something that God, well, sort of interesting that you think that. <laughs> I mean, there we are. And uh, you're more likely to bring them along. And you can say, well, there are other ways of doing what? What other way? What other way? I mean, I don't know what it is. And uh, we've tried this way. So, all right, I'd be repeating myself. But that's, uh, that's what uh, the experience on the court, more so. And in general, that's, that's what it leads me to think we're fairly good at and we'll continue to do. And, and being upset? Sure, be upset. Be upset. Tell your mother, father, wife, husband, girlfriend, boyfriend, best pal. But when you're out there and you want to help, help. In the back, right in the back. Thank you, Justice Breyer. Um, how should Supreme Court justices interact with the media and journalists, or to what extent should they? Well, it's, uh, you don't talk about present cases or cases that might come up, and once they learn that you're not going to talk about that, you'll be surprised how rarely they contact you. <laughs> 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 but 
but, but I usually do. And I think Rehnquist used to do that. And, and uh, uh, I think uh, that uh, probably uh, Roberts does too, and probably a few others. Is once a year you go out to, there's a regular Supreme Court press corps. Uh, from, and they're much, uh, I mean, their articles are much more uh, informed, whether you agree with them or not, they're much more informed. And so once a year, we'll go out to a Chinese restaurant, and we have a nice time. And so they've spent two more hours learning nothing. But <laughs> nonetheless, uh, no, no, it's, a, it's just good relationship. And uh, learn something about how the court works, but not individual cases. Can I ask a follow-up to that? Please. Uh, cameras in the courtroom, the experience of COVID, does that change your views in any way of, of having to do things remotely? And what do you see going forward? COVID, what we did was we, when it was for that year anyway, a little over a year, uh, we um, were telephone. Really, we, the lawyers were on the phone, we were on the phone, and you could ask questions. We had the phone set up in such a way. And our conferences were like that, too. No one liked that very much. I mean, it cuts off the human part of it. And so now what we're doing is we're in the courtroom for oral argument, uh, but the public isn't there. The news is press. The press is there, staff, and uh, uh, people who work there, and they all have to have their COVID checked and so forth. And, uh, and uh, conferences were, were there. Uh, we're all present, uh, almost always. But uh, that's better. And what's grown out of it, which I think is better, is it used to be sort of a total free-for-all. And now we have a slightly more organized way that Roberts will ask the first question. No, usually, well, Roberts could, but, uh, but usually it's Clarence Thomas who asks the first question. And that's, you know, I've sat next to him for 27 years. I know he has questions and understands the case perfectly well and has questions about it, but he never liked to ask questions. He didn't like to butt in. That's actually the truth of the matter. And so now that it's sort of more stabilized, he asks interesting questions. And, and uh, uh, there we are. I think that's a big plus. And, and you, you know, everybody knows they're going to have a chance. The arguments go on a little longer. But I think that's a good thing. So, so we're going to have it. Everybody's going to have a chance to ask us questions. And uh, so it's, it, I think it works a little better. And I think we'll stick to the system. Though it does take more time, which uh, depending on the case, might or might not bother you. <laughs> More questions? Over here. Thank you so much for being here with us, Justice Breyer. Um, you spoke briefly in response to Professor Ford Mosery's question about how oral arguments might change judges' opinions. And I'm curious about how, over the course of your time, on the court, whether hearing arguments over and over, reading briefs over and over, there are bigger picture things that judges can and do change their minds on, and whether there's anything that your experience on the court has changed your mind on. No, probably quite a few, but I mean, it's hard for me to remember back to what I, to what I was, um, I mean, I just had a case, I can't tell you what it is because it isn't out yet. And, and um, <laughs> yeah, but I was just thinking, I, did, I didn't change my mind. But when I began to look into it, it just was less simple than I thought. And there's a better argument on the other side than I thought. And that happens fairly often. That happens fairly often. Until, um, 
you really want something where I would have come out the other way. I mean, I think one of the most interesting areas now, because we're having more of these cases, because more people are, are the religion cases. Mm -hmm. and, and how exactly on this freedom of religion part, I mean, I said that to the class earlier, but I mean, uh, the Quakers don't want to pay for Vietnam. That's part of their religion, but they have to. But there are an awful lot of cases, the, the tribe wants to smoke peyote. Well, they have a right to. But a different tribe doesn't want the trees cut down for religious, not environmental reasons. And they don't have that right. Hmm. And what's the underlying principles here? And I've sort of had a hard time with this group. And I think we would. And, uh, and the person who did, I joined her opinion saying that because uh, it was uh, Amy Barrett. And she said, you know, it's awfully hard to find principles here. I said, I agree with that one. <laughs> and, 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 uh, there we are. One last question over here. Thank you so much, Justice Breyer. Um, I have a question. What are, what are experiences outside of your career that have informed the way you look at the law? And are there ways in which that you recommend that law students develop themselves outside of their direct interaction with the law and with their career? Yeah. I'd say a law student, and I've said this about judges, because David Bazelant really gave me this advice when I became a judge. He said, find one thing that really interests you that has nothing to do with being a judge. You can say the same thing about a lawyer. And follow it as a hobby. And I, I probably, I've had a couple. I mean, what, one was this architecture thing I've been on, which is I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot about sort of architecture, but also about the need for architecture uh, to make a world uh, in which human beings can have decent lives and how the built environment, which is these buildings and so forth, really affects you in ways you don't know about. But it's there. Psychologically, plays a very important role. And I've heard architects discuss it, and I find it absolutely fascinating. And what, what I'd say, what I've said often, which is so, so true, uh, to the um, students who are about to enter college, and they say, what shall I study? And what they're thinking, they want to be lawyers, and they want to make money. And they're like, okay. <laughs> Don't, I won't say I said that. But, but, <laughs> but um, I say, look, undergraduate, there is no answer for law. You don't know. There's no specific thing. So why don't you, if you want, take some time and study the liberal arts? Learn a foreign language. And it's not too late, you know. If you want to learn Spanish, if you want to learn French, you can do it. And uh, why? And what I say to them is what I've learned over time is that uh, you only have one life. And you know that life pretty well. And so does your family. And so do your friends. And you know theirs. And you know what those lives are like. But there are billions of people who have other lives, you know. And through literature and by knowing a foreign language, you can learn about lives that otherwise would never touch you. And that's a fabulous thing to learn. I, I, I've done that. And it's, I'll give you the secret. I, I, I've tried that with French. It's a hobby. It doesn't hurt anybody. And I like doing it. OK? So, so um, uh, 
uh, and I got good advice on how to do it. Uh, it, was, uh, it was by the, one of the ambassadors, actually, from France, and he said, here's what you do. Uh, read half an hour a day. That's all. 20 minutes. And the first thing is you won't understand a word, but then write down the words you don't understand, look them up in the dictionary. Okay, but don't spend more than 20 minutes to half an hour a day. Oh, I've tried to do that. I've read a lot of things. Interesting. And I heard one of the people, because I was listening to, to uh, Boujon, uh, it was uh, uh, Giscard d'Estaing, who had been president of France. And he speaks perfect English. And uh, he reads English a half hour a day. You want to learn Spanish? I've tried. <laughs> you want to learn Spanish? Half an hour a day? You do that for half an hour a day? A year, a year, a year and a half. But my goodness, it will be worth it. It will be worth it. And uh, you want me to tell you how it'll be worth it? I don't know. But it will. Thank you, Justice Breyer. Thank you to all of you for being here. Thank you to the university and everyone at the law school and everyone at Monticello and the Jefferson Foundation for making this possible, for making all of the Founders Day activities possible. Um, Thank you most especially to you, Justice Breyer, well, for you. accepting thank this medal. It thank is you. such an honor, and I hope you will all join me in thanking Justice Stephen Breyer. Thank you.